The following broadcast is brought to you by Anheuser-Busch Incorporated, brewers of Budweiser, Michelob, and Bush Bavarian. Hello, everybody. This is Jack Buck with Carl Erskine at Municipal Stadium in Kansas City, Missouri. From Sunny Shy Park in the city of Philadelphia. Brought to you direct from Comiskey Park. So we have action at Ebbets Field, Brooklyn. And there's always action here. Across the field in Cincinnati, Ohio. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. Sunny day here at Tiger Stadium. The wind blowing straight in from right field. Well, friends, here we are back at the polo grounds in New York City. Don't pull up a comfortable chair if you want to take your shoes off, go ahead, wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shave for a two throughout the evening. Jerry Royce was a two-time All-Star, a world champion, won 221 games during his 22-year big league career, and is one of 29 players to play in a Major League Baseball game in four different decades. He's also an accomplished broadcaster and one of the great ballpark photographers of our time. Jerry Royce, welcome to the Lost Ballparks Podcast. How are you? Doing all right. To start, you attended your first Major League Baseball game in the mid, I think, mid-1950s. And you and your brothers, Jim and John, and your dad went to a Cardinals game at St. Louis's Bush Stadium 1, previously known as Sportsman's Park. Walk me through your first experience at a big league ball game. It was the first and only time Dad took us to a ball game, all three of us. But what I remember is that we didn't live that far away from them, but it took a 15, 20 minutes to get on the street, Grand and Dodier, but it took another 15, 20 minutes, maybe a half hour to find a place to park. Back in those days, people would use their front yard, their backyard, and make an extra couple of dollars just having people park when they were uh, attending a ball game. The ballpark was painted white on the outside, the sun reflecting off of it. And I could sense the electricity in the air as we approached. Well, we went through the gate. It was a bathroom stop before we went up. But what I remember is walking through the, uh, the gate and I could smell the antiseptic smell that lingered after they cleaned the ballpark from the previous day. But no amount of that astringent smell could wipe away the cheap cigars and the stale beer that permeated <laughs> through that ballpark. Yeah. Uh, but it was cool. But as you climb the steps to get out to the concourse, it warmed up. And the smell kind of drifted away. And then there we were. And I remember being on the third base side. We got tickets that were in the lower in the lower deck. So I had a chance while the Cardinals were taking batting practice to see for the first time what their uniforms looked like at home. And then looking out into distance on a perfect day, a Sunday afternoon, perfect day, clear blue sky. And then the pavilion out in right field where the screen was. 310 feet from home plate and just below that wall, which was unpadded. And there were no advertisements on the wall at uh, Bush Stadium one at this particular time, but there was a warning track. It was made of crushed shells and then the grass and then the dirt. And then you got to the infield portion of everything. And I just took all of it in. I remember the whites of the Cardinals uniform standing out in contrast against the the gray uniforms of the visiting team. There were three announcers, Harry, Carey, Joe Garagiola, Jack Buck. All of them were working this particular day. There go the Cardinals on the field and here for the play-by-play of the ball game. And here's good evening to you is Harry Carey. Thank you, Jack. Hello again, everybody. All set to play baseball here. And you could hear the play-by-play on the radio through the loudspeakers that were down in the concourse. Boy, you've got to get good pitching to beat these fellas. Here's the first pitch now to Mays, and it's outside. So you were never far away from hearing the game 
And then, of course, looking out and seeing the scoreboard in left field, uh, it stood there like a monument. And it was, even though we were right behind the dugout, as far as placement, although we were up a little bit, the scoreboard looked close enough that you could reach out to it. So all the sights, all the smells, all the excitement. And for me, after the ball game, when we were in the car and the way back home, I said, I'm going to be a ball player. I'm going to be a major league baseball player. Well, my older brother, Jim, six years older than me, was sitting shotgun with dad on the way home. And, and he says, you know, there are millions of kids around St. Louis area that are all saying the same thing. He said, so your chances are about one in a million. And then in one of those moments of, of clarity for someone less than 10 years old, right. I shot right back at him and said, well, why can't I be the one? And as it turned out, I was one of the ones. Wow, it's amazing. And, you know, especially considering that you fast forward about a decade and in July of 1966, the visiting Atlanta Braves invite you to throw a bullpen session before their game with the Cardinals. And that would have been at Bush Stadium 2, which opened in, I think, May of 1966. OK, so walk me through that experience coming into the clubhouse, putting on a uniform. I mean, I get I get goosebumps thinking about what what that must have been like for you. Yeah, I was in high school and I think it was in 1966 or 67. But right now I lean more toward 1967. The local scouts set it up with a farm director or whomever was in charge of the minor leagues for me to throw down in the Braves bullpen. So I'm invited down there and it's just before the draft and they wanted to get a good idea of what I could do. So for me, it was just a matter of of getting the parking. They told me where to park. I went through the double glass doors that years later I'd passed through so many times, both as a Cardinal and as a visiting player. And then the scout met me at the double glass doors, walked me down to um, the clubhouse which was a left turn as opposed to the Cardinals, which was a right turn. I remember the clubhouse guy was reading a paper and smoking a cigarette, leaning up against one of the pillars that was in the clubhouse. And so the scout said, can we get the kid a uniform? He's going to do a tryout for us. And and then the, the um, <laughs> then the clubhouse attendant looked at me, gave me the heads, you know, from head to toe. He says, I got something I think will fit you. So he went back into the back, got a uniform gave it to me. And I said, um, I had my high school bag with me. Imagine that a high school gym bag. All I had in there was a glove and some shoes. And, a, yeah. and he said, I said, where do you want me to dress? He took a look around. He says, go around the corner. There's a lot of empty lockers there. There was one open locker between two that were filled by Braves players. Didn't pay much attention to it because my concern was getting dressed and getting out on the field. But I did take a moment to, to take a look at who I was dressing between. And on my left, it was Henry Aaron. On my right, it was Eddie Matthews. Oh my gosh. I got dressed. Neither of them were there, went out through my bullpen. And it was an exciting time for me because I got loose in no time. You know, those 17, 18 year old muscles, that was pretty, it felt pretty good. So I was throwing pretty hard. And they said, well, you can get dressed now and um, we'll talk to you upstairs. But I take a little bit of time and I sit on the bench as the Cardinals were taking batting practice. And I just take a look around and I said, wow, so this is what it's like to be in the major leagues. I didn't stay too long, went back up in the clubhouse. By this time, everybody was in the clubhouse and both Aaron and Matthews were at their lockers. And, um, you know, I introduced myself by this time, Aaron was available and uh, I introduced myself to him and he looked at me very gracious And he said, um, 
were you the young man down there throwing in the bullpen, bringing all that heat? And I said, Mr. Aaron, that was me throwing down in the bullpen. Yes, sir. Thank you. I appreciate that. And he says, well, sounds like you've got um, a chance for uh, a baseball career. I want to wish you the best. And wow. I said, well, thank you. I certainly appreciate that. So I got my shower, got dressed, packed what little clothes I had, said thanks to the clubhouse guy, walked out, met the scouts, had a word or two, and they say, we'll contact you if something comes up. Well, I uh, never heard from the Braves when the draft came around. It was the Cardinals who drafted me second. And that was just a week or so later. Yeah. So it would have been in June of 1967 that you were drafted by your hometown St. Louis Cardinals. Stan Musial is the GM at that time. And in fact, it was his only year in the position. Did you meet with him or was it with somebody else? Musial wasn't in on the meeting. Oh, okay. My parents and I went down there, listened to what the Cardinals were saying. There was money up front. And then there was money that also would be paid, that was guaranteed at the first of the year. Right. He said, we're trying to give you a tax break. <laughs> I'm, I'm really going to think about a tax break 18 <laughs> years old. <laughs> Seriously. I, yeah, I'm, I'm worried about making $2.50 an hour at the job where I was uh, at that time. Right. So tax breaks were something totally new to me. So as we're sitting in Musial's office, I guess that's the only place they had. And I guess they wanted to show off all the hardware because it was all over the place. All of the MVP awards, Stan decorated his shells with all that. Plus, I think the Cardinals liked to show it off when they could. So the Cardinals are offering you $7,500, which is a lot for a young kid. And then out of the blue, your mom joins the conversation. That, that kind of caught me by surprise. But uh, there was a lull in the conversation and my mom's popped in. Is there a chance that there could be some money that dad and I can go on vacation? After the negotiations, they said, why don't you sit down and, and then we'll come back? Because the Cardinals were playing a double hitter against the Phillies. And so we went down and the, they put us in stand seats, which was right behind the Cardinal dugout. That was impressive because we were right on top of everything. I never sat in seats like that. Right. After the ball game, they called us back. So between ball games, they said, we're going to sweeten the offer a little bit and give you their vacation money. And they asked me what I thought. And I'd already had the conversation with dad about it. And one of the things that he said in the negotiations, he says, you know, the money they're offering you is more than I paid for our house. I mean, I'm sure that's hard for a 17 or 18 year old kid to even begin to comprehend that. But you take the Cardinals offer and at September of 1969, you get called up and the team's first game is at Philadelphia's Connie Mack Stadium. What struck you as unique about that old ballpark? It was old. Yeah. It was ancient. Yeah. <laughs> and and they had a low ceiling when you walked from the clubhouse to the runway. It was dark and not many lights, but it was it was also very short. So you had to duck your head. I watched guys duck their head. I didn't think anything of it. I didn't duck my head and I, I got hit right in the forehead. Didn't that happen to you at Tiger Stadium too? <laughs> it happened to Tiger Stadium as well. And I said, yeah. Yeah, they, these were old ballparks. Now, at some point during that first game, Tim McCarver, who wasn't catching that day, walks down to the bullpen and has you sign a few baseballs. There wasn't enough room to put everybody on the bench. So Red said, why don't you guys, you pitchers, go on down to the bullpen? He sent me and Santiago Guzman down to the pen. And, you know, there weren't enough chairs. And as soon as I get down there, there's um, maybe a half dozen baseballs to sign. And, and McCarver was passing these things around. And he says, hey, rookie, sign these baseballs. I say, hey, Tim. I was told we're not supposed to do this during the game. He says, sign the balls. You'd be glad you did. So I did. <laughs> a couple of innings later, 
guys start beelining into the, uh, the groundskeeper's room where they had all of the lawnmowers and what have you. <laughs> I was watching the game from the bullpen, but I went back in there and there's one light bulb, maybe a 60 watt light bulb hanging from this tall ceiling. And it was down to a makeshift table where a couple of guys were playing cards. And I said, so this is the big leagues. But boy, when that guy came in, he had cheesesteak sandwiches. And boy, did guys go after that. It was like rubber, uh, putting a steak in front of a hungry dog. I mean, you got to applaud McCarver's ingenuity to stay off. He's a hungry guy. He's got these autographed baseballs. Let's make a trade for some Philly cheesesteaks. He grabbed one of the cheesesteaks out of the out of the pile and he flipped it toward me. He says, this is why I had you sign the baseballs. He said, let that be a lesson. That was the implication. Let this be a lesson. Yeah. Always listen to Tim after that. Yeah, I bet you did. Uh, so after a few weeks with no action, finally, on September 27th, 1969, you get the call. It's a nasty, cold, rainy day in Montreal at Jerry Park against the expansion first year expos. That ballpark was not meant to be a major league ballpark. It was just supposed to be something that they used while they were building Olympic Stadium. Uh, they were in it quite a bit longer. What, what did you think of Jerry Park? It still looked better than a lot of the parks that I saw in AAA. That's for sure. And as far right. as I was concerned, it was the major leagues. We were there. It was a tough day. It rained. I wasn't sure they were going to get the game in, but they wanted to play it. And it rained all the way through batting practice. So we just went out there when there was a lull in the storms and played a couple of innings. And then they had to postpone it for another couple of hours so that uh, the next rain could come through. So it's still a little mushy out there. And we were able to complete the ball game and get all nine innings in. They wanted to complete that game. And that is a game that you will never forget because that delivered your first big league win and your first big league hit. And first big league RBI, which was the difference in the ball game. Do you still have the ball from that game, either the hit or the final out? Yeah, well, you definitely. See, there was a tradition with the Cardinals. Um, when you won a ball game or had a big hit, the trainer, Doc Bauman, Bob was his first name, he would take the ball with a series of pins and did a line score on the horseshoe part of the ball and then write all of the highlights in there. And it's right behind me. It's uh, your first major league win. I have that inside a case. In 1970, you pitched your one and only game at Pittsburgh's Forbes Field, the same ballpark where just 10 years earlier, Pirates second baseman Bill Mazeroski had hit one of the most famous home runs in baseball history. Here's a swing and a high fly ball going deep to left. This may do it. Back to the wall goes Barra. It is over the fence. Home run. The Pirates win. A ninth inning walk-off home run to win the 1960 World Series. What do you remember about your time at Forbes Field? I was just in awe of it because I knew the history that was associated with it, particularly the Mazeroski home run. Right. And as a kid growing up, I watched the World Series religiously. And I remembered the names. I remembered the uh, the players who were in the infield, the outfield, the pitching staff. Fortunate that I had a pretty good game out there and got into the ninth inning with a shutout, gave up a run and had a complete game and got my second major league win. Yeah, at one of the most historic ballparks in baseball history. In a way, I guess I was fortunate because I was on the cusp of transitioning ballparks in major league cities. As you mentioned earlier, I did go visit Connie Mack in that one road trip in 1969. Let's see, I made the one in Pittsburgh and I missed the one, I missed Crosley Field in Cincinnati. I went there the first time with the club when they went there for the first time. I remember looking at how gray everything was, all except for that 
yellow stripe on top of the outfield fence as it went all the way around. Uh, and then it became the time for cookie cutter ballparks, uh, many of them with a, a form of artificial turf. April 10th, 1971 at Bush Stadium One, you are the opening day starter for the Cardinals. And at this point, I think you're you're 21 years old, a couple of months away from your 22nd birthday. And at the top of the first, you come face to face with one of the greatest hitters to ever live, Willie Mays. I mean, are you kidding? Yeah, that's what I thought. You know, I threw him, um, he got called out on strikes, which kind of surprised me. I threw a fastball past him and I said, wow, I didn't really expect that. But, you know, again, it, you know, it, this is Willie Mays. You probably had his baseball card growing up. And I watched him play. I, visiting teams came into St. Louis. I probably saw all of them that I ended up playing against or even playing with uh, when I was a kid growing up in St. Louis. When you strike him out, Jerry, you can't tell me. I know you've got game face and you're you're locked in in that moment, but you can't tell me when you strike him out that you didn't crack a smile a little bit. Oh, I was. Uh, of course I did. And he struck out on a, on a called third strike. And I said, there you go. You can play here. Well, next time up, I get two strikes on Willie with a runner on base. And I tried that same scheme, tried to throw that high fastball past him. He jumped all over it. In fact, it went out so fast. If the scoreboard hadn't been there, it would have cleared the bleachers and probably gone a, a, a block or so behind that. But it it would have hit the scoreboard clock, which uh, uh, which was covered in chicken wire so that players couldn't hit it. So I'm watching Willie go around the bases and I'm thinking, well, nice to meet you, Mr. Mays. Yeah. So that attitude changed after nine batters. Don't take it for granted. A year later, you get traded to the Astros for Lance Clemens and Scipio Spinks. Now, when the trade goes down, the Astros are in town in St. Louis. So at Bush Stadium, you literally walk out of your clubhouse and head to the visiting team clubhouse to join the Astros. And somewhere along the way, you run into Scipio Spinks. And what happens? Sip had taken an early flight from Houston. So I run into him. I recognize him because we played against each other in the minor leagues. And I shook his hand and said, congratulations. I want to wish you the best. I said, um, do you still have orange sweatshirts with you? He goes, yeah. I said, I got some red ones here. I'm not going to use anymore. You want to make a trade? He goes, well, hell yeah, let's do it. So <laughs> I reached into my bag, handed over some sweatshirts to him. He gave me some orange ones. And that's what I wore during my tour with Houston. And you still have those sweatshirts, right? Yeah, I still have those sweatshirts. They were old wool sweatshirts made by McAuliffe. Of course, over the years, they, they kind of dry rotted. Now, we're talking 1972. Right. I'll do the math for you. That's 50 years ago. Yeah, I still have those orange sweatshirts. That's amazing. What did you think of the Astrodome? Uh, it was interesting in Houston because when we were taking batting practice, pitchers finished their batting practice, but they didn't go down to the field. Instead, we changed tops and some guys went in shorts and they had a tram because Astro World was an amusement park. I think it's now part of Six Flags. And they sent a tram over and they took us to the old Colt Stadium where we did our running outside. Now, over there, they didn't take care of it anymore. They didn't need to, but they cut a path so that we could run in the outfield. And uh, all around us was grass that was real high. And while we were running, we had to keep our eyes open for snakes that could come out in the grass or any kind of other wild animals. So you would see, um, you, there are all kinds of things that would run across in front of you. And then you would take the tram back to the ballpark? Back to the ballpark. And that would be it. Yeah. In fact, a couple of times they had visiting players come over and say, when are you going out? Because they didn't want to run on the dome 
after three days, you get used to that air conditioning. Then you have to pitch in a place like Atlanta or Cincinnati in the middle of summer. Yeah. And it takes some getting used to. So they wanted to do their work outside. Wow, I had no idea. When you were a member of the Astros, you pitched against the Dodgers, I think, six different times. What struck you about the crowd's special connection to Vin Scully? Well, when the Dodgers first came out, they, uh, the people of Los Angeles weren't aware of what it was like to have a major league team. This is in 1958, but they had the Hollywood stars and they had the Los Angeles Angels. And it was a whole lot different mentality attending those AAA games back in the Pacific Coast League. But when Vin came out, it was an upgrade, a, a severe upgrade. He had to educate the fans on what was going on at the major league level. And they played at the Coliseum, which was their home for four years until Dodger Stadium could be built. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Ben Scully speaking to you from the Los Angeles Coliseum as opening day has finally come to Southern California. Because of the configuration of the Coliseum, there were fans, if there was a crowd that night, that had to sit way beyond the outfield fences. The crack of the bat doesn't arrive until later on because it takes so long for the sound to carry. Drysdale ready and the 1-1 pitch. Curveball cut on is a high fly ball right down the left field line. Right on the line, hits the foul pole and kicks foul. That's just about as foul as you can get without being fair. So what fans did was bring transistor radios to the ballgame. Back in those days, the Dodgers didn't draw quite like once Dodger Stadium was, was there. They kept the habit of bringing the transistor radios with them. And one night, it was a weeknight playing uh, the Astros against the Dodgers. It was early in the season, and it wasn't a particularly big drawing game. In fact, there's only about 20,000, but I swear 10,000 of them had radios. And the best place to hear the ball game, actually hear it, was on the mound. Because I had radios that went all the way around beyond the foul pole in left field and in right field. Like surround sound. It was surround sound before we called it that. Yeah. So I could hear where Vin was doing the ball game, particularly when there was a smaller crowd. I could tell he was in the middle of a story while I was out there pitching and he was going to get through it and I was ready to pitch. But in deference to him being the best in the business, I stepped off the mound, let him finish his story. And then when I stepped back on, it was perfect timing on his part. He delivered the punchline. The fans laughed. And after taking one short pause, and Royce is ready for the 2-2 pitch. What a great moment. And I, and I can completely uh, imagine what that must have sounded like to be on the mound at Dodger Stadium and hear Vin's voice echo throughout the ballpark. Okay, so during the last week of the 1973 season, Hank Aaron is in full pursuit of Babe Ruth's home run record. And the Astros, your team, you guys are in Atlanta at Fulton County Stadium on September 29th. You are on the mound facing Hank Aaron. Now, pretty incredible considering that just seven, eight years earlier as a teenager, as a young prospect, you had met Hank. You had sat next to him in the clubhouse at Bush Stadium. Isn't that something? Yeah. How, how a meeting like that and suddenly I'm pitching against him at one of the most historic moments in baseball history. Right. Well, as you can expect, uh, uh, you're not going to throw a fastball by him. So I figured I'm going to throw him a curveball. And I got it too much into part of the plate that he likes. I think anything that was a thrown ball, he pretty much liked it if it was in a zone that he could handle. He read it, hit it, and hit number 713 against me. I was one away from a historic home run. He got 714 off Jack Billingham the next year. 
and then 715 off Al Downing, which is the clip that we see on the anniversary of that home run Yeah, all the time. So what's interesting is when I see Al, I always walk up to him and I shake his hand. I said, 715, how you doing? He looks at me <laughs> and he goes, 713, couldn't be better. <laughs> That's so great. In 1974, you were traded to the Pirates and became teammates with Willie Stargell. As a kid, I'm thinking of him as like a one-man wrecking crew, an intimidating player who could do pretty much what he wanted at the plate. But in addition to being an outstanding player, a Hall of Famer, he was also a genuinely good guy. Oh, he was. Um, he would talk to young players who had just come up. In fact, there was a story I'd learned years later by a pitcher named Rick Langford, who pitched for, well, pitched for the Pirates and then went over to Oakland. Langford told me the story. He says, my first day in the big leagues, I didn't know anything. He said, I met Stargell down, uh, down in the lobby. He says, why don't you come with me? And they got in a cab, went over to the ballpark early. And Willie walked him around. He says, this is how we handle clubhouse guys. This is who takes care of your gear. This is who does this. And this is who does that. So uh, Willie had a habit of doing those things for young players, even to the extent that when somebody asked me, said, Willie, can you come out to my place? I'll pay you so much to do it. And um, Willie would say, pay me this and I'll bring a young player and we'll split it. Wow. And obviously he didn't have to do that. No, he didn't have to. And he had fun with everybody, but he also laughed. So that Pirates Clubhouse, it was it was as rowdy as anything I had ever seen. I guess if you went to college and joined a fraternity, it would be like a half hour after somebody tapped the keg. <laughs> it just got crazy. And then about six o'clock, everything kind of settled down. This is yeah. batting practice and infield. And then guys started getting serious about the game. Jerry, you got it. You do have to tell the story of being on the elevator at the executive house in Chicago. <laughs> You, Dave Parker, and Muhammad Ali riding up to, I think, the 12th and the 13th floor. Yeah, we were riding down. We're at the All riding down. Yeah. yeah. And Dave and I were on the same floor. We're both getting ready to go downstairs, push the button, and we get on, and the elevator goes down one floor. It opens up, and there's only one person there, and it's Muhammad Ali. And he gets on the elevator. Now, I'm impressed, but you should have seen Dave. It was the first time I ever seen him speechless. He didn't know what to say or do. <laughs> and so I figured I'd break the ice. And I looked at him and I said, well, Dave, why don't you tell, why don't you tell the champ how you could whoop his ass like you tell us in the clubhouse every day? <laughs> Dave goes, well, wait, 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 wait. You can't say that. Now, Ali, Ali has a great, had a great sense of humor. Always did. Yeah. And he, he gets that look in his eyes. He's got those little narrow eyes and turns around and looks at Parker. And then let's Parker stew a little bit. And finally, Dave get, comes to his senses, introduces himself. And Ali tells me, says, I know who you are. And I figured, well, the ice is broken. I'll take my chance to shake his hand. And so I start putting my hand out. All he did is just look at me. He says, you are an instigator. I got 10 more flo floors to go with a guy who is the <laughs> world champ boxer and yeah. Dave Parker, who could probably whip just about anybody in the world that Ali can't. So for me, that was a long 10 floor ride down to the to the lobby. That was that was interesting. No matter where you were or what team you played for, you were always known as a guy not afraid of pulling a good prank. I, I one in particular I think about is the uh, the one you did with with Ken Brett. Ken Brett, who was a teammate with the Pirates and then bounced around to a couple of different teams before uh, we both met up again a couple of years later uh, with the Dodgers. And Brett, I knew, was a free spirit. So he comes up to me one day and he asked me a serious question. He says, what in this game haven't you done that you'd like to do? I said, Ken, I'd like to play in an all-star game because at that time I hadn't. So I'd like to play in a World Series, which at that time I hadn't. 
and well, went 20 games and I went on and on. And I, I finally paused and I looked at him and I said, well, what about you? He says, I want to dress up like the ground crew and drag the infield in the fifth inning. And he paused and he said, I want to know if you want to do it with me. And I paused again and I thought of all these reasons why I shouldn't. But what came out of my mouth was, what time do we meet? (laughs) Because we had to go down to the uh, ground crew's locker room and get dressed. Find some clothes. Yeah. Yeah. And I went out, Lasorda saw us coming out there and boy, he tried to stop us, couldn't do it. So underneath the auxiliary scoreboard, which, which is just to the left field side of the dugout, is where we got the drags, and uh, we just followed them. I, I knew exactly what to do. We just followed them around and um, got to the first base side. People recognized this at this time. Yeah. We put them, the drags back in to the hole that was uh, by the scoreboard on the first base side and made our way back around to the clubhouse, got dressed and the sort of before he let us on the bench, informed us both that we were both fined a hundred dollars for doing it. <laughs> uh, but the thing of it is, they never paid it. You know, when I went in there, I said, "Let me write a check." He says, "Forget it. Just don't do that again." <laughs> such a such a great story, and you can just picture Tommy Lasorda's face was probably uh, so red. All right, listen, Jerry. There's no way I could do this interview without talking about your no hitter on June 27th, 1980. The Dodgers are in San Francisco to play the Giants at Candlestick. Sudden Sam McDowell was on the podcast in season one, and he told me then that every single game he ever pitched at Candlestick, even in June, July, and August, he always wore long underwear. Now, this day that you're pitching, in June of 1980, which Vin Scully chronicled before the game. Hi, everybody, and a very pleasant good evening to you, wherever you may be. And first of all, let it be known and truly declared, it is hot in San Francisco. I mean hot. 80 degrees and higher all day, and still that warm in the ballpark tonight. It borders on the unbelievable. It was warm when the game started, and there wasn't much wind, which was rare in San Francisco. So you knew that something special was going to happen on a night when the weather was freakishly warm. Uh, But after three innings, you see that scoreboard. You can't help it because it was one of the biggest scoreboards in baseball at the time. And I knew they hadn't gotten any hits. And you go through the order of the next three innings and you say, you know, I might have something special going on here. Then you do the countdown with the outs. Well, here we go. Jerry Royce is six outs away from a no-hitter. All the way down to one more. Bouncer down to Russell. He has the hop. He is one out away from it. And then, of course, you're celebrating. Even the Giant fans now, you can sense our rooting. Royce got an ovation when he went to the hill to start the inning. Little number back to Royce. He picks it up. He's got a no-hitter. Jerry Royce at 31 years old has done it. A no-hitter. He missed a perfect game only by an error by Bill Russell in the first inning. What a magnificent moment for the big blonde. Rick Sutcliffe throwing his arms around him. And all of the Dodgers happy for their player representative who put on a magnificent show. That's only part of the story. The next day, we had a fine if we didn't weren't out there on the field for the national anthem. Yeah, like a $25 fine or something. $25, yeah. but it was just the... I would have paid the $25. That's no big deal. But to have to hear Lasorda complain, you missed the national anthem and embarrass you in front of the rest of the team. Gee, I didn't need that, especially after pitching a no-hitter. 
So I was thrilled that I was able to get to the entry onto the field. And I was down right field, just past the Giants bullpen. And as I'm doing it, I'm, I'm getting a standing, there's a standing ovation and people start cheering. I'm the only one that's out there, aside from the Giants pitcher is still warming up. And I'm looking around, I'm thinking, Willie Mays is here, maybe McCovey, Juan Marshall. These are the guys that deserve the standing ovation, but- It was for they, you. They were applauding me. So I yeah. took my cap and then they stood up. And then I made my way from all the way to right field behind home plate and then into our dugout. And there's Lasorda with his arms folded. He said, it's going to cost you $50. And I thought I'd have been better off if I missed the anthem because it was half the price. I said, why am I getting fined 50? He says, because you responded to Giants fans. And I said, no, 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 that's not true. He says, well, who the hell do you think these people are that are applauding you? I said, I tip my cap but I did it only once. Now I want you to look up there in right field, right behind the Giants (laughs) bullpen. There were four people in Dodger jackets that were up there. I said, Tommy, those are the people that I tip my cap to. He he looked up there and he he shook his head. He just says, you know, I'm the idiot for arguing with you. (laughs) I could listen to Tommy Lasorda stories all day. So 1981 starts with you being awarded the 1980 Comeback Player of the Year, which has got to be validating after you're traded away from the Pirates two years before. You finish 81, the strike-shortened season, with a 10-4 and record at a 2.30 ERA. The beginning of that year, did it feel like that 81 Dodger team was a, a team of destiny? No. <laughs> no. I didn't, I didn't even think of it like that because I was the player rep and I was more concerned at that time, rather than focusing on team of destiny and that sort of thing, about keeping the season going. As it was, we ended up missing 50 games. So it was try to put something together once both sides came to an agreement and and try to finish out a season. And good thing an agreement was reached because after defeating the Astros in the Divisional and the Expos in the League Championship Series, the Dodgers squared off with the New York Yankees in the 1981 World Series. Hello again, everybody. I'm Keith Jackson, and welcome to the World Series for 1981. This is the 11th time the Dodgers and the Yankees have faced each other in the Fall Classic. The Dodgers winning in 55 as the Brooklyn Dodgers in 63 as the Los Angeles Dodgers. However, the edge goes to the Yankees in the 10 preceding series, 8-2. to two. You faced Ron Guidry in Game 1. And pitching, warming up, number 41, Jerry Royce. And Gator got the win. The Yankees go on to win Game 2 at Yankee Stadium. Let's see, the Dodgers take games three and four at Dodger Stadium by one run each game. And then you get a chance at redemption in game five. And you, Jerry Royce, pitch a gem. A complete game, giving up just one run. And what a moment. In the ninth inning. The crowd standing is one. With two outs, you stepped off the mound. And before you threw another pitch, you did what? <laughs> yeah, you did read the book. I took a moment to, to enjoy it. You know, step back for just a second. I had two strikes on Aurelio Rodriguez, two men out, runner on first. And I said, strike three here means the game's over. And I took a look around Dodger Stadium from left field all the way around to right field to see 56,000 plus on their feet cheering like I'd never heard before. Before I delivered that pitch, I thought, you know, this is the moment that I played played as a kid for. Uh, the games in the backyard, the games at the schoolyard. Even in high school, this is what you pitch for to win that big game in the World Series. And it wasn't a bigger game that I ever pitched at any time in my career. And then I stepped on the mound and blew a strike three past Rodriguez. Two out, no balls, two strikes. 
three games to two. And that made us winners in game three. Three days later, we won in New York, and we were world champions. Tommy Lasorda, very, very happy Dodger clubhouse, as you can well imagine. And Tommy, uh, we talked just a moment ago about the fact that it seemed that the Dodgers had to be two down before they could come back and regroup. It's a great, great victory. This is something that has escaped us for a long time. And we wanted that championship so bad. We wanted to bring it back. Everyone who played such a vital role in this victory. What a tremendous win. We all did this together. That's going to be a bonding factor for the rest of our lives. There's one more story that I want to get to. On May 6th, 1986, the Dodgers are in Chicago. And there are trade rumors swirling around you, as there had been all year long, which has got to get old. But you had a unique way with dealing with that kind of stress. Some of the writers were asking about a possible trade with the Yankees. The Yankees were in town in Chicago to play the White Sox at Comiskey. So you decide to pull one of the all-time great pranks. Uh, with the rumors going constantly, and I'm still trying to have fun with it, I said, I'm going to put an end to this. I'm going to find a way to do it. And little did I know that there was a scheduling incongruity, we'll call it that, that had the Cubs play in the Dodgers in the afternoon and the Yankees play in the White Sox that evening at Comiskey. And so once I realized that, we had just lost the game. I think Leon Durham hit a home run in the ninth inning. And so I went into Lasorda's office and I said, what do you know about Lou Pinelli? He says, why? Why are you asking about Pinelli? I said, I told him what I was going to do about all the trade rumors. He just shook his head. He said, go ahead, go ahead. I can't <laughs> stop you. So I packed my bag full of towels and Rick Honeycutt came with me. He says, I got to see this if you're actually going to do it. And I said, yeah, why don't you do it? And so we took a cab down to Comiskey right after our game. And we went in I, and I walked up to the guy outside the visitor's clubhouse because Honeycutt pointed, this is where we have to go. And I said, um, Jerry Royce, formerly with the Dodgers, I just got traded to the Yankees. So where's the clubhouse? He goes, oh, yeah, Jerry, nice to meet you. Come on in. So I opened the door and I'm carrying my bag. Honeycutt's following me. And he's looking at the faces of everybody as I beeline right into Pinella's office. The coaches are there. The players are there. And they go, now what has George done? Yeah, you're walking was, right through the clubhouse. Yeah. I walked right through the clubhouse with my bag and say, and a couple of guys I recognized. There was Joe Necro. I said, Joe, nice to see you again. How are you? I'll see you in a little while. <laughs> I walked into Pinella's office and Lou had just <laughs> was in his rookie year as manager for the Yankees. And he had just gotten suspended two games. So he can't sit on the bench. So he's getting dressed. He looks at me and I introduced myself and said, Lou, Jerry Royce, I can start. I can relieve whatever you need. He goes, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> I said, well, let me close this door here for a second. And I said, didn't George tell you? Didn't they make the call? He says, I don't know a thing about what you're talking about. And I don't want to know. I've been, I've been fine, suspended, and I got a team that's not playing well. And you come in here with this. And I said, well, let me take the burden off your shoulders. And I throw my bag onto his desk. Papers go every which way. I opened it up and it's full of towels. And he looks at me and he goes, what? I said, since spring training, every day there have been reporters who, who tell me that this team's looking for me, that team's looking for me. And I've tried to play along with it, but I want to put it into it because it's become made the clubhouse crazy. And I said, but... I, I did what I wanted to do. I got the reaction I wanted. The reporters are going to say what they're going to say. And that's going to be that. So I appreciate it. Thank you. I wish you all the best for tonight. He says, no, no, keep that door closed. Let's sit down here and talk for a little bit. He says, this is the first time I've been able to laugh. And I can't tell you how long. So 
tell me what you've been doing, what's been going on, and uh, yeah, we'll visit for a bit. I'll let you know when to leave. So, <laughs> so we talked for about 10 minutes, and he says, you know, I got to get dressed, got to go up. I say, he says, I, I, I appreciate what you're doing. He says, good luck, and we'll, our paths will cross. So Such a great story. I, I think, by the way, that you had a good feeling that your career was drawing to a close in 1990. So it was at that time that you took the opportunity during that final season with the Pirates to take your camera with you to every ballpark, and you took photos from every angle you could imagine of ballparks that you were playing in, documenting many ballparks that would soon go the way of the wrecking ball. And I can tell you, in my time here at Lost Ballparks, I've seen thousands and thousands of ballpark photographs. And the ones you took, which folks can view on your Flickr account, just search Jerry Royce, they are some of the most crisp, beautiful shots I've ever seen taken. And for folks like me who love old ballparks, they are really a gift. There'll be a link inside the podcast notes where you can check that out and also a link to your book, Bring in the Right Hander, that uh, I encourage folks to check out. Jerry Royce, thanks so much for the time. Mike, our paths will cross again. Really quite a career. Jerry Royce, a two-time All-Star, a world champion, 221 wins during his 22-year big league career. And as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, one of 29 players to play at a Major League Baseball game in four different decades. Special thanks to our producers, Mike Dunn, Xavier Guerra, Michael Ortman, Manny Zaflakis, and Briggs Buckingham. Thank you for listening to another season of the Lost Ballparks podcast.